Blog Talk Radio. Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. This is Kim with Black Free Thinkers, and we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself. Again, we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself. We are Black Free Thinkers, but we are not the Kanye and Candace Owens kind. So I just want to make sure that that is understood from the beginning. But today we have a special guest in with us. We have Dr. Annalise Fonza. We're going to talk about her book, and we're going to talk about, you know, the significance of her books and the significance of her book to the community and also kind of give you all some insight as to how we get to this point in history, okay? So what I wrote here is, Today, in Rebuilding Black Communities with Love, Dr. Annalise Fonza summarizes what she has learned about the rebuilding of former black ghettos in predominantly black neighborhoods and communities in urban cities. It is both a proposal and a love letter that builds on about 20 years of experience as an urban planning scholar and educator. With this brief EPUB, she reflects on the motivations and familial legacy of Ollie Gates in Kansas City, Missouri. Gates is the owner of Gates Barbecue, a world-renowned business. It is also a book that Dr. Fonza has dedicated to the memory of John Lee Johnson, who has a major catalytic force in redeveloping the north end of Champaign-Urbana, or an area where black residents of Champaign-Urbana were allowed to live. The North End is, was also spatially, spatially situated right across the street from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, UIUC. Dr. Fonza learned firsthand about the community and economic development from Mr. Johnson as a graduate student at UIUC and at a time when she was an ordained minister in the United Methodist Church. If the development of former black ghettos or predominantly black communities and neighborhoods is something that interests you, then this book is definitely worth the read. So please join me as I interview Dr. Fonza today. And I embedded the link in the show notes. So if you guys go out there, click on the link. Let's support Dr. Fonza and her endeavors there. And if you get a chance, just, you know, let her know you're alive. Encourage her. Say hello. So, Dr. Fonza, welcome to the show again. Thank you, Kim. How are you? It's a pleasure <laughs> to be here. I'm good. Always, always a pleasure to be here. So, you know, normally about this time I would give an introduction or read the bio of the author that I'm speaking with. But, you know, to me, I feel like no one can tell your story better than you can. So I kind of adopted a new style on the show. And I'm going to let you tell us who you are, what you stand for, and what we are going to be looking forward to in the future. Wow. Well, thank you. Um, who am I? That's a good question. I think that's a question all of us have to answer about ourselves. Um, because who I am isn't what I do, okay? Um, mm-hmm. Who I am is is at my core, like, you know, how how do I see myself, right? Uh, how do I how do I understand myself in the world? And I do understand myself as a truth teller, and of course as a writer, but I'm a truth teller. So the uh, that's who I am. Uh, I I have been a truth teller from a very young age. I have been someone who has. Uh, 
love to sit at the feet of elder uh, adults, elder black adults uh, in my family and, and even beyond in the different communities where I have worked and, and, and lived, and I've learned from them. And I always love to get their wisdom because they were just amazing people, you know. So yes. I've, I've known myself as a truth teller for a long time, uh, at least 20 years, I guess you could say, at least at a time about 20 years ago when I started um, a, a journey in urban and regional planning as a student and then later as a, um, a professor or a teacher of urban planning and also as an educator in urban schools. That's really who I am. I'm from Springfield, Illinois, born and raised, um, but nobody from my family lives in Springfield, Illinois. Um, I've been all over the United States. I've had the opportunity to live and work in many cities. And now, at this point in my journey, um, I've been able to publish independently, and I've been published it on my own uh, company, but I've published this book um, really after a lot of reflection about urban planning and, and particularly as it uh, relates to former black ghettos. And what I mean by that is former spaces in urban cities where blacks were segregated or where they were forced to live. I'm not talking about downtown that just declined. I'm talking about an intentional uh, designed space that um, city planners and developers created to to confine and to control its black residents. So that's what I mean when I say a former black ghetto, and then uh, many of those former black ghettos have evolved into what I'll say a black neighborhood or or a black community. But really, that's what I mean by that. Um, I will say, as as you mentioned in the bio, I am also a former. United Methodist minister. I'm now an atheist. Um, I uh, I was at one point in my life, my biggest goal was to be an attorney, uh, but I left law school in 1991, 92 to to go after uh, local church ministry. I was living in Houston, Texas at the time. So um, though that event, law school and ministry are also important to my presentation, if you will. They're important to the way that I talk about things because that has, th those two experiences shaped my uh, young adulthood and, and how I was seeing the world at that time. Excellent. Excellent. You know, we're happy yeah. to hear that. And 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 what can we expect from you in the future? More writing. Um, I've had a lot of book ideas over the years. Uh, I've wanted to publish my dissertation. Uh, I probably won't publish my dissertation independently. If I do publish it as a manuscript, it'll be with a, a larger academic press. Um, however, uh, I have a, a new book that's on the horizon about recovery from relationships, codependency, and partner abuse, which is something that I endured personally. Um, I do see myself as a, a recovering person, 
um, particularly from codependency and being a codependent, um, being loving someone who, uh, and loving not just one someone, but over the the years in my life, loving men who were um, unable or unwilling to fix themselves. And as a codependent, um, I would try to fix them. I would try to kind of love them <laughs> enough, um, and that never works. So um, that book, that's my big book, uh, and I'm hoping that that book is out in February of this coming year, 2020. I also recently had an idea to publish, uh, package and publish a lot of the, the um, articles and essays that I have written for conferences, for planning conferences over time. And so I've been uh, involved with urban and regional planning since 2000, the year 2000. And I've had the opportunity even to present my work in Europe uh, at the Joint Congress of Planning Schools, the National Congresses of Planning Schools. I have presented my work there as a womanist, and I presented it in a theory track, a, a talking about, you know, the relevancy of womanist thought and even feminist thought on development in cities. Um, so another big aspect of who I am is that I operate and I see myself as a womanist and a womanist as opposed to feminist. These are not interchangeable terms for me, but a womanist being uh, essentially a truth teller, uh, but a womanist being grounded in culture, in black culture. Black life, black communities, uh, being an advocate for those communities. That's the heart of womanism for me. So those two projects, the big book on recovery and um, another compilation of my essays, and perhaps I, I would even love to collaborate some, with some of my PhD colleagues and friends on that so we can put together a big book a bigger book, so to speak, because the the current book that I have just released is more like a, I call it an EPUB, right? It is a digital publication. You can read it in less than an hour. And I did that intentionally. I did that because I wanted people to read it, grasp it, move on, uh, get excited about the conversation around urban planning and the redevelopment of former black ghettos and former or and, and of black communities. So I did it for those reasons. Um, so, but writing has been a huge part of my life. Every job, I'd say every job I've had in my adulthood has hinged on my writing. Everyone, every employer that I've had has hired me because I could write, unbeknownst to me. <laughs> <laughs> because seriously, because there was a time when I didn't realize how powerful my writing is. And one of my taglines over the years has been, never underestimate the power of the pen. Okay. So exactly. um, over the, yes, yes. We don't realize how powerful writing is as a tool. It's, it's, it's been the tool of our greatest warriors here. Um, in the Western Hemisphere, when we think about even Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, uh, Booker T. Washington, um, W.E.B. Du Bois, Marcus Garvey, we could go on and on. Every one of those freedom fighters, 
wrote down their stories. And and that is why I'm saying it it's writing is such an important tool, but writing for the purpose of leaving a legacy, of, of sustaining the next generation, of, of of putting something there for others to pick up so that they can say, you know, what do I do? You know, go for guidance. So that's really I'm a truth teller, and so therefore, because I'm a truth teller, I have to write it down. Um, that's where I'm at with my writing. Uh, very excited to be at this point in my life because um, I'm 51 years old and and just putting my first solo and and an independent project out into the world. Um, even though I've written in books and I've and I've published in academic journals and other books and things like that. But it's different when it's your own, right? It's different when it's you. Exactly. And you're just putting it out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's where I'm at with that. All right. Well, there you go. And congratulations once again. You know, I, you know, I got you. I'm in your corner. I'm one of your cheerleaders. And you know this. Over the years, you I know. know, we've had a chance to interact and get out there. So, all right. So let's tear into this. Let's tear into okay. this. Well, we all know that I have this thing about Shambana. I went to University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign as well. And, you know, you're talking about what happened on the north end of Shambana, but the north end of Shambana is pretty much every city and town that has, you know, pockets of black and brown people. And so True. what I try to do is when I, when I talk about things, you know, on this show – I talk about how there are concentrated areas in which they will usher black people into, and there have been a number of articles and studies out there that I've that I've shared and may not have shared, and you read on your own that talks about that particular, um, you know, uh, that particular. How how can I put it? Um, that talks about that particular type of conditioning or as you said, containment and, you know, all of that. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I talk about is how all of these white suburbs, these white enclaves are built around the major city. And that's done on purpose. And the realtors will have someone, a white couple, a black couple or individual that has a comparable salary, comparable amount of time on the job, but what they do is they'll steer the white people away from the inner city and steer the black people more towards the inner city. Even if they have to lie and say, oh, well, the people that live in the neighborhood are really nice. You don't know. You haven't right. talked to them. So this is why I go on and when I talk about gentrification and I talk about it in such a way that I say that basically black people are being deported off of the reservation that they have been assigned to. So, you know, mm-hmm. you could tell us a little bit more about how the state, the government itself, so when I say the state, I'm not just talking about your state government. I'm talking also mm-hmm. about the federal government, how they created the ghettos and the urban communities and the boroughs and barrios and all of these different things. So if you can kind of expound on that and help them to understand how this came to be. Right. Well, absolutely. Our uh, it, it, the segregation in cities is, is not just um, not just for big cities because, you, like you said, you could find it in a small place, even like Urbana-Champaign or Champaign-Urbana, however you want to say that. 
Um, and it, that was simply a, a manufacturer of the, you know, the, the early 20th century racism, <laughs> basically. Right. So the, right. our banking system as we know it uh, was bolstered by the housing industry. Right, our economy is is dependent upon that, and has been dependent upon uh, the housing industry and the housing stock. Is one way that our government sells uh, the viability of places. And in the 30s, you know, through redlining, as as you may know, and others, your listeners might know, the government made it possible for white homeowners. Yes, to settle uh, mostly in the suburban area around the city, whereas they uh, redlined or made undesirable the spaces inside the city. Okay, and 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 they identified those places um, by the population and therefore on the the basis of the color of skin of the people who live there not on their economic worth or value, although the color of the skin was associated with that economic worth. Um, it was primarily a racialized uh, mechanism. All right. So in our nation's development, the, 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 the beginnings of our housing industry were steeped in that kind of racist uh, planning. Okay. So, at the highest level, which we're talking about the federal level, where that was done, uh, meaning the, the, the accumulation of the banking system and the debt system that we have, we have then the development of kind of a racialized order of housing and, and then peoplehood, you know, in places. And that trickled down to, of course, our um, cities and towns. So anything that's being set up by the government, you know, is going to trickle down because you have that's that you know there's kind of a hierarchy to our government. So the, what's happening at the top is going to trickle down to the bottom. So cities like Champaign-Urbana also had spaces that were redlined, if you will, or that were uh, identified as places where b black residents could live and should live. So that's, in a very kind of a quick, brief nutshell, you know, <laughs> a, a good description of, of how government is involved in that. And it's involved through not only laws, okay, uh, laws that come about and, and acts of Congress, but also by then, again, institutions, the banking institution, and then it's also then codified or, or enacted at the local level through its urban planners and real estate agents who work together to buy and sell land and make land available or not to whomever. Does that make sense? Exactly. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. Yeah. It makes perfect sense, you know, because when they do that, it also allows them to undervalue our our mm -hmm. home, you know, and our property, and that's done on purpose. And one of the arguments that I've seen out there and that I have personally is what happened in 2007 and 2008 in, with the subprime mortgage loans and all of those things and how it basically wiped out 
70 to 80 percent of black and brown wealth. And we also mm-hmm. know that that was done deliberately, and we are still dealing with the ramifications or the consequences of what happened in 2007 and 2008. And it's just interesting because when I try to tell people that the government has a, you know, a strong hand in all of this and how it's planned and how it's worked out and how it affects people, you know, they don't seem to get it. And they don't mm-hmm. understand some people when I start talking about gentrification and how it is violent. And, and mm-hmm. you know, this is how they displace a lot of people. So one right. of the things that, you know, that I was out here and I talked to people about, because the people like to use places like Ferguson, Missouri, as mm-hmm. an example. But when I talk mm-hmm. about Ferguson, Missouri, in this context here, I want to talk about how, Basically, it's pretty much, you know, an all-black town, you know, um, basically predominantly black, and how it's the fines, the fees, and the taxes that they collect from the black people that actually keeps that government and that municipality afloat. And that's just Mm -hmm. not Ferguson. That's Chicago. That's L.A. That's Detroit. That's, you know, a little podunk town over here and there. So can you kind of expound on that, on how they tax and fee and fine black people into jobs predominantly given to white folks. And, and basically the police, which in turn oppresses black people even more to generate, you know, some type of equity. So can you talk about that? No, oh, gosh, I really don't know if I can. I mean, I, <laughs> I think that the people <laughs> who could talk about that the most are your economists and accountants and stuff like that. But um, I mean, what I do know about cities is, in like Ferguson or even Kansas City is uh, the people who who live in those boundaries then are taxed at a certain rate, right? And those rates are determined mm-hmm. over time. They 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 fluctuate up and down, and when the people can't really pay the taxes, right? Um, then that causes services to be interrupted. That causes uh, problems with, you know, employ, uh, employers. Uh, that, that causes deficiencies, basically. So cities don't make uh, allocations for certain kinds of services if they don't have enough money that they've collected from the taxpayers. Um, taxpayers in, in those places may or may not live in those neighborhoods. And that's something that people have to understand, okay? Because, like here in Kansas City, you might we at one point Kansas City was a place where um, it it was very segregated, and and it has it has uh, kind of spread over time. It's 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 been permissible for blacks to live in neighborhoods that were once all white, but it doesn't mean that those white homeowners no longer own those homes, okay? Uh, In some cases, you have uh, still ownership in the hands of whites who maybe, perhaps they pay their taxes, perhaps they don't. So you have high rates of foreclosure where they have moved out and they've decided not to pay their taxes and they've left vacant and abandoned land uh, in in those neighborhoods. That is very, very problematic because then, Either they're renting out the space or they have um, their property is now um, 
part of the federal government through housing uh, section eight, uh, things like that. So, <laughs> so that, that's what I mean. It, it's not as easy as just saying these people who live here, we have to really dig down into the ownership of the property itself. Who owns the land and have they been paying their taxes so that the services in those cities or those neighborhoods can be adequate to support the residents? And that includes for schools. Um, so, exactly. I mean, I, like I said, I think you'd have to probably talk to somebody who's really much more of a statistician <laughs> and maybe even an econ economist to get deep into that. But I can give you my planner's right. analysis of it, which has to do with the <laughs> fact that there are a lot of abandoned properties or properties in uh, neighborhoods that are now predominantly black that weren't once predominantly black, but the ownership has not necessarily changed hands, but the, the, the occupancy has, you know. Right, exactly. And so it's interesting um, just looking at all of that because, again, with the banks and the mortgages and the lending and redlining and all of that, basically mm -hmm. um, looking at 2007, 2008, and even before, you know, what I try to explain to some people about how hard it was for black and brown people to get these mortgages, to get loans for, you know, to buy a home, if you will, a lot of that mm -hmm. was done on purpose and, again, backed by the state because there are a lot of wealthy white landowners. And in 2007 and 2008, it's been major corporations as well as these wealthy white landowners buying up the property that was foreclosed on um, in, you know, the urban areas. And another thing mm -hmm. that's taking place is a lot of our elders are being taxed out of their homes. So it comes to a point where they can't right. afford it anymore or they, they right. may have forgotten. And if someone buys that unpaid or pays that unpaid taxes for them, I think after a couple of years, it depends on what state you're in, these people are able to come in and take these homes away from our black elders. And we've been seeing that happening across the country like crazy, and it tears me apart. Because if they were only missing, you know, in some cases, this guy only owed about a couple of hundred dollars. He was only short mm. a couple of hundred dollars, and it was a home that had been in his family for generations, and he lost it. So it's a lot of that yeah. happening. And, again, it's state-sanctioned, state-based. Can you kind of expand on that yeah, a little bit? Yeah, there's a lot of uh, exploitation and manipulation that goes in goes on still in the housing industry, and that's really the, the bottom line. I do want us to get into the book itself <laughs> because oh, I think a lot of times what people do, um, they they get caught up in talking about housing, and I'm, I haven't written a book on housing, okay? I've written a book on <laughs> basically I'm looking at the life of Ali Gates, who is an mm -hmm. entrepreneur in Kansas City, and and what were his motivations for becoming an entrepreneur, and and what again, how did he sustain that over time? Okay, right. So that um, if anybody is interested in buying the book, and I hope they do, they can go to the link that you have posted. It's available through the library, through OverDrive at this time. It has not yet posted to Hoopla, but you can get it through your local library through the app 
overdrive if you have it, Barnes and Nobles, Amazon, uh, and, and a few <laughs> others. But um, okay, this this so piece, how would ahead. you encourage us to re? How would you encourage us to rebuild the black community? What are some of your suggestions? What have you seen? Tell us what Mr. Gates has done and why you find it inspirational. Well, first of all, I want to say the whole piece that I've written is about the love that Gates, Ali Gates, Mr. Gates has for himself and for his people and for his family and where he got that from. He got that while he was living in a ghetto, okay? He, he learned to love mm-hmm. himself in a ghetto. So one thing I want to say to people is, even if you live in the in some detestable circumstances or what a ghetto, a lot of people say, well, I don't want to live in a ghetto. Or, I mean, because black people weren't the only ones who lived in ghettos. There were Jewish ghettos, exactly. the first Jewish ghetto. The first Jewish exactly. ghetto was not in Poland. It was in Italy. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Tell them. So, okay. <laughs> and then it continued. So it was a European production that made its way here to the United States intended first for European immigrants, not for what we call African-Americans. It wasn't until African-Americans and those who were uh, of African descent and Caribbean descent began to move across the United States via the Great Migration that they were able to live in these ghettos that once housed the Europeans. So the Europeans were empowered in, in to move out of the ghettos that were created for them. And then blacks who moved up to uh, the urban industrial areas then replaced them. Okay? So uh-huh. that's kind of what happened here in Kansas City too, okay? <laughs> so exactly. The, the whole, exactly. Uh, yeah, so that whole idea of living in a ghetto uh, could be understood as this kind of changing of the changing of lanes and um, shucks. So what I want people to know is, if you grew up in a ghetto, because, and based on the example of Ali Gates, you don't have to take on the mentality that is there. He he said in the interview, I I the, the, what sparked this whole thing is I was sitting in a meeting with him where he was giving an interview and I happened to be the keeper of the interview. (laughs) So about that, I was just like, wow, you know, listening to him say this, he said, well, when I, when I grew up, I thought I was going to be the biggest thug in all the world based upon all the buzz about my father's business because he, he inherited his father's business. His father had a, a barbecue joint first. So in his mind, that was where he was, what he was destined to be, a thug, right? And he decided, right. obviously, he made a choice with his life, because everybody got choices, as uh, E-40 would say, um, <laughs> to some extent. I agree with that to some extent. But he decided he did not want to be a thug. He decided he was going to become a business owner. Now, how he did it, uh, point by point, I don't know. You have to go interview him, and he's hard to pin down. Good luck. Okay? But he has given many interviews over the years 
But what he's been able to do is build a literally, when I say it's a world-renowned business, it is world-renowned. I don't know him personally. I'm not vouching for his character, you know, as a, as a human being. <laughs> but what I, what I do know about Mr. Gates is he has intentionally placed his wealth in Kansas City's former black ghettos and black communities that have been left out of development over time. That is what I think we need to rebuild former black ghettos and communities in the United States. You need people who who love themselves and who love black people. They love black culture, and they are willing to invest and not exploit the community. They are willing to put their money back there. They don't have to live there. If they don't want to live in the communities from which they came from, that's cool, because Ali Gates doesn't live in the communities on uh, the Kansas City's east side, but he does his business there. He employs people who would not be employable anywhere else in his businesses. He provides the social space for black people to gather, to be culturally satisfied with the food they eat, and, and with the camaraderie, with the social idiosyncrasies that we have as a people, and that's what made me that's say, right. wow, this is amazing. You know, this is how you do it. He's exactly. just one person. And he's just right. one and person. So what's interesting – exactly, exactly. And what I was going to say is what's so interesting about that is going to kind of veer off a little bit, but how he's in the community with the people, employing the people, and again, as you said, he he created a social space. And what I want people to understand and to know with all of these different movements, the Black Power Movement, the Civil Rights Movement, um, even with, you know, Black Lives Matter and these other social movements that were out there, there are black businesses that allow them to come in and to use those spaces as well as some of the black churches allow them to use those spaces so that they could organize so that they could you know really put together some strategies and tactics but in some cases they fed them because otherwise those people would not have been able to you know to eat and that is love mm-hmm. that is love that is black love yeah. that's how i see it yeah, I mean, that's what I'm saying. So that's why this is a love letter. This is about what it means to be strengthened and empowered by love. And I'm not talking about the gushy, mushy feelings you have for someone. When I say love, <laughs> I'm really talking about the power that you get that comes from being loved. Okay? When you are loved in your family, from your mama, your papa, uh, your friends, your family, your significant other, you can fly. And and it, it so love has uh, an an energy to it. Love is I call love my love is one of my higher powers. It is one of those things that I have learned to trust because when you love someone or something, you you again you you what's the word I'm looking for you you. You engender it. You 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 support it. You you know you um, you empower it. It, it. There there is a power that exactly. goes with that. The same power that we're talking about. Um, again, I wrote in the article or the, in the EPUB with uh, the Black Panther Party. 
uh, I, I had the opportunity to sit down myself personally with Elaine Brown because she talked about the radical philosophy of love that undergirded the Black Panther Party. Uh, of course, we think of Martin Luther King's works all undergirded in this concept of love and having the strength of love, the strength to love oneself, the strength to demand one's own dignity, right? The strength to stand up for oneself. That's the power I'm talking about. Not, not again, not gushy-mushy stuff. I'm talking about <laughs> the power that you get from standing up for yourself and for your people. And that's one of the things that has been, or a couple of the things that have been eroded in our, in our American landscape over time because uh, blackness and black culture is often despised. So exactly, that's what I'm talking about in this whole piece that we rebuild on on dignity. We rebuild these former black communities rooted in the dignity and the peoplehood uh, of its residents. We rebuild that way. You can't. I mean, you can get a developer to come in and put up a facade and make a building look good uh, all day. But come back 15 right. or 10 years later, and is it still there? Okay. So right. the, way, the reason that Gates has been able to uh, sustain is because he, he, he has stood, he's an icon for <laughs> black culture, right? He stood for the dignity of blackness. He, he loves being black. Um, He's he's very vocal. He he's on a lot of important boards here in uh, Kansas City, Missouri. Um, he he makes his presence known. He has put his money in the places where you know he would like to see it go, and he hasn't taken his money. Uh, it, it is in other places around Kansas City, even one suburban area or two. But he's prim- primarily and predominantly in the heart of uh, of the city. Okay. Um, one other thing I was going to say, because John Lee Johnson, similarly, because I dedicated this to John Lee Johnson, exactly. I followed John Lee Johnson for two years when I was a student at the University of Illinois Champaign, or at Banner Champaign. That's how you say it, UIUC. Um, and John Lee, I, 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 I came to a Champaign, or I came to Urbana, not as a, a student in planning, which I eventually became a master's student in the urban planning uh, department there, but I came to Champaign um, as a pastor. And so one morning, you know, I'm laying in bed, and I and I, I love radio. I'm a big fan of radio and local radio, so I turn on radio. And a Saturday morning program by this black man, I mean, I could tell he was a black man by his voice, yes. And he, I, I, I was just, flo- this guy was talking about redevelopment. Exactly. And I was like, who is yeah. this man? I mean, this was when I was a pastor again. I was like, who is he? I have to meet him. So that's what I did. <laughs> um, I took my little self down there, and I met him. I said, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. And what John Lee did was similar to what Ollie Gates was able to do, but one little old person, okay, that's loving right. himself and his people and standing in that power to insist on the development of the North End. One person, John Lee Johnson, I never saw him in a suit. He wore tennis shoes, 
jeans and a t-shirt, and sometimes he combed his hair. That's how he rolled. <laughs> he was at the the he was at every business table. Based on the Community Reinvestment Act, he used the law to um, make yep. the banks, make the real estate <laughs> agents and all comply with the law. Oh, my goodness. So exactly. I had the great pleasure exactly. of following him around for two years. It was really a pleasure. Really, I did. He's oh, dead now. Would you, do you mind? Yeah. Do you mind sharing with us? Um, you know, oh, yeah. But do you mind sharing with us some of the wonderful things that he taught you personally? And well, this- again, it's the same lesson. The lesson is stand up mm-hmm. for yourself. Stand up for your people. Love yourself. Love love yourself Learn. enough to um, figure out what laws will empower you That's to right. be who you need to be. He was uh, he was That's great at it. All that. he did, he was he was he he said, "Well, do you know about a? Do you know what a chota is? And do you know what a such and such is?" I was like, "No, yeah. I know." <laughs> right, so right. he was start explaining infinite domain and all. Oh yeah, he he's showing me. I didn't know what the heck I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> but John Wayne was really uh, a breath of fresh air because he was an unrelenting advocate for black people on that part of town and he single-handedly uh he well i should say he was a major catalytic force for having any kind of redevelopment uh residential redevelopment and business redevelopment in that part of the town and if i don't know what it looks like today but i do know what it looked like in 2000 it was not all that great i mean by my standards looks, but of course it was very nice it was very dated very i mean nice. you, you know, it's probably it's still, at the 50s it's still in progress it's 50s, mm-hmm. 60s kind of home uh, uh, landscapes and designs and stuff like that. So it was it wasn't like riding down and seeing luxury <laughs> luxury homes and apartments, you know. Uh uh-uh. uh no no no. Very simple. Um, but he it, it made a space for uh, the black residents there who couldn't live anywhere who were prevented from living anywhere else in that city. So. That's exactly. why he did it. I and mean, I can, I can it's not, that's what I'm saying. That's why I wrote this piece intentionally to be short and sweet, right? Like, you do it mm-hmm. on love. Stand up for yourself. Get the people, the people who invest in former black communities need to be the people who came from there, if all, at all possible. And exactly. they really love the, they really have a, a passion for it. They really want to see it be sustained. They want to see the next generation get something out of it. They want to make room for uh, new startups and and entrepreneurship and uh, social and cultural activities that are uh, that speak to the people who live there. That's how you do it. Exactly. Exactly. Oh yes, and definitely. And what I I want to make sure people get this out of it. All it takes is one person to get this started, and you yes. know, and it can spread to other folks, but that's the reason why we empower you and embolden you with this information because once you have the information and the education and the laws and all of that under your belt and you understand it, it is hard for them to resist you to the point that you just give up and go away because you have right. the law on your, on, your hand, on your side and you have the information right. and you go in there and you press and you press and you press 
And again, like, oh, it's only me. You know, if I just show up by myself, they're going to laugh at me. No, they won't. Especially if you know what you're talking about. I mean, you do have to do your homework. I don't. I don't tell anybody mm-hmm. go downtown uh, and and try to start demanding things, and you don't know what the the heck you're talking about. You need to talk to people who know what they're doing when it comes to community and economic development before you go, you know, getting making demands, right? Because you might right. end up looking very foolish. So there is, a, and that and that comes from okay, hello, hello talking to people like me who are trained in <laughs> urban planning, urban and regional planning that comes, I mean, you can, and I, I was, where was I? I was at the dentist last week. Mm-hmm. And I I go to uh, the University of Missouri, Kansas City has a school of dentistry, which I like very much. And so I had that day, I had two student dentists working on me. And one was mm-hmm. my normal guy. Very, uh, I really like him. He's a, a young black male student, and then the other was a a white male, and he was just getting to know me for the first time. And he's like, "So, okay, because my dentist calls me by my title. I mean, I'm like, do you know me personally? No, if you don't know me personally, don't call me Annalise. <laughs> so my dentist <laughs> calls me Doctor Fonza <laughs> Heller, and so the that's cultural." And the student dentist uh, who was there with him, then he's like, oh, what kind of doctor are you? First, you know, we got that over with, uh, PhD. Mm-hmm. And then asking me about my discipline, he's like, is that like social, social sociology? I was like, it's a social science. But no, right? it's not sociology. It's its own discipline. It has a 100-year a, a, exactly. a time span. So... If a person is interested in being a city or regional or even a federal planner, they need to go to school in a in a accredited urban planning program. It's a social science. Exactly. So, yeah, it's not an architect, okay? Architect and planning, two different kind of strands, but uh, they're usually related, usually like even here at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, Architecture and planning are is one department together, and that's very normal. But uh, yeah, I even taught in the, the Department of Public Administration at Clark Atlanta, and my colleagues who had their uh, masters and doctorates in public administration had no clue as to what urban plan. They did not think urban planning was its own its own field, right? Its own discipline, but it is. Right. So. That's the Excellent. thing. I say to people, go, go sit down, take a class. <laughs> Hello. Uh, talk to people who do this stuff for a living. Uh, recognize that they probably have a bunch of information that, you know, you never would have had you not gone to see them. Uh, I, I have friends here in the city who, who are, you know, buying businesses. Um, I, I know people who, you know, when the people came to them about buying the business, and we, I said, well, how is it zoned? You know, blah, blah, blah. When you're talking zoning, when you're talking zoning changes, when you're talking special uses in an area, you need to go to mm-hmm. a planner, a city planner. Okay, that's city planning, urban planning. Because Excellent. zoning is, it, every city has its own, and county even has its own zoning ordinance. So you have to comply with the law. Uh, ordinance is a law. People have to 
figure out. They have to do their homework. So anyway, so that's it. I don't know. Did you have any callers, Kim? Do you have any people who are waiting to maybe ask questions or? No. No, no callers. Um, the number Not is three one zero nine eight two four two seven three. Well, okay, it's, it's some callers here, but they haven't pressed the number one button to let me know they want to talk. Oh, okay, so okay. That's, I didn't know that, if there was that, people wanted to chime in. Yeah. Well, you know. Yeah, I, but if you want to call in, you can. Uh huh. Go ahead. Yeah, give the number out again because I there might be some people. I pubbed this as hard as I could on my end. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, the call-in number is 310-982-4273. Again, that's 310-982-4273. And if you want to ask a question or speak, you have to press the number one. And so then it pops up this little button, and it lets me know that you want to ask a question. Otherwise, we know you're just listening to the show via, you know, the telephone. But that's fine. Right. You know, we've covered cool. a lot, a lot of material. Oh yeah, you know, ground there. You know, one of. The, oh yeah, definitely. You know, and what's what's great about many of the urban planners is that they understand the structural racism, and they understand how they they can help you to understand how to plan, how to strategize. You know, the different tactics you can use. Um, and we're starting to see some of that in the state of Illinois with this so-called mm-hmm. wealth equity that they're trying mm-hmm. to build for black and brown people in the state of Illinois. But the problem is is that even with them, you know, stating that they want black and brown people to participate in this, it is so expensive that black and brown people cannot afford to get the licenses needed in order to be a part of that wealth equity and distribution program. And so it's just, it's, it's like, you know, it's like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. He said he would help black and brown people, but he's not talking about me, Pookie, and Ray Ray. He's, not, right, he's right, talking right. over to these people over here that have a million dollars straight cash that they can just throw out there and run with this concept. But in the city of Evanston, Illinois, which is a little bit north of Chicago, they are opening up marijuana dispensaries. They have the medical marijuana dispensaries. January 1st, recreational marijuana use in Illinois will be legal, right? And yeah, so yeah. in Evanston, Illinois, the profits coming from marijuana sales will be going into programs um, put together to pay reparations to black people in the city of Evanston. And so, okay. you know, while on one hand, that's wonderful, but as we know, living in this country and seeing the things that we've seen and, and reading about and understanding, you know, there are times when it seems as though they're giving you one thing, but you don't realize mm-hmm. they're taking three things away from you on the back end, which is why you mm-hmm. need people like urban planners with you because they know how to go in, and again, like you were talking about the ordinances and the policies and the laws, you all know what to go and look for, and you will keep up with the state legislation to get a better idea. But, you know, it's about well, education. Ideally, it's about giving uh, the information. Inter- I can uh-huh. interrupt you if I may. <laughs> ideally. Yes, ma'am. Because one thing you have to remember, an urban planner, a city urban planner, operates as a as a – at the hand is the hand of the state. So, right. mm, 
So again, let let's let's take urban renewal. Exactly. Urban renewal mm-hmm. came about in the fifties and city planning, city planners and city planning departments effectively destroyed mm-hmm. a lot of black communities and former black ghettos. That's right. Putting people in public housing, right? To then change the landscape, make mm-hmm. it possible for land developers and landowners, uh, land speculators, even to buy property to displace them. So while we exactly. want to think ideally that a planner has the people's best interest at heart, that's not always the case. And, and the same exactly. is true for gentrification. So gentrification is another thing which has to do with displacement, but usually they change the, again, the demographic makeup of an area um, monetarily, and thus also that's going to follow in terms of racial, um, racial terms. So exactly. planners, that's not, oh, go ahead. That's, I'm, I'm not I'm saying that all planners are like, going to be your friend. You need a John Lee Johnson to be your friend. Exactly. <laughs> you need, you need a Ollie Gates and a John Lee Johnson. Stake. You need people with exactly. money and stake in the community exactly. to push the planners exactly. to do their jobs and to do it uh Hopefully, in a way that really honors honors the people. So, I, I'm not trying to. Again, I'm just. I, and I've been no. all over in different cities, and I'm not. Uh, in no way do I think that city and urban planners um, do the best thing, right? Uh, I I, I oh, teach no. people. No, I teach it's... students who. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I teach students who go on to become those. I hope they do the right thing, but they might not because it's about keeping a job. <laughs> <laughs> and if and they don't do what their client say. wants you know, them to do, huh? Then they're gonna be out here with me, Pookie and Ray Ray. Exactly. But no, if they're yeah, yeah, they're gonna be out there with you, and Pookie and Ray Ray. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. If they don't do what <laughs> they have been commissioned to do, I, let me tell you. Let me tell you. This right. is a true story. <laughs> this is a true story. Uh-huh. I can't go to the city of of uh, Kansas City and get a job if my life depended on it. For a city planner job, they will tell me, <laughs> "Well, not qualified." <laughs> I have a PhD right. and a master's in planning, a master's in public administration, experience in state government, experience with local planning agencies, twenty years of of time just in and immersed in urban and regional landscapes, and they will look me straight in the face and say, "Nope." Not qualified, but they will hire my students. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Right. So that tells you a little bit about kind of, well, lots of reasons. But one, I think most planning, <laughs> city and local planning departments don't want a PhD, okay? They don't want someone who has a lot of or has knowledge under her or his belt where they may actually, again, they might do some of that challenging. Um, but right. it's easier to get a student who's just starting off for the first time, uh, hasn't really worked anywhere, and and is willing to go along uh, with the whatever the party line is, right? Right. And and do the bidding of whatever whoever their client is. 
So, and I'm not saying that a, a right. PhD couldn't do that or wouldn't do that either. But all I'm saying is there is also a very uh, clear kind of anti-intellectualism running through our 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 um, our world, you know, and, and our Western culture. Exactly. No, they don't want smart <laughs> smart black women at that. Exactly. Uh, Bank City and urban right. planners. No, no, no. We we'll take. Well, I'm not saying anybody else is not smart. I'm just saying we don't want, they don't really want me. That's been my experience over time. Oh. So no, I, I end up it. writing I what I do. It. I write. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, hold on. Let me qualify what I said earlier. When I was talking about okay. getting with an urban planner to help them with their activism and all of that, I'm not talking about the urban planners that are being paid by the city, employed or paid or consulting with the city or state. But there are other people out there that have been trained and that do understand mm-hmm. what's happening because there are a lot of urban planners that can't find a job in urban planning. So they have to, you know, kind of, you know, figure out where they fit in and, and, and get placed yeah. wherever. But the thing is, is that but it's good to have someone that has that type of knowledge in your camp somewhere that you can go to and that can explain things and help you and at least push you in the right direction of what you know mm-hmm. should be doing, what you should be doing at that time. But it's just oh, interesting yeah. how all of that because, um, yeah, no, they don't want certain people in those jobs, especially a smart black woman, because they fear you're too smart and you're going to push back and you're not going to go along to get along, and that's a problem. And that's with a lot of jobs yeah. in this country. That's a lot of jobs. Yeah, it's definitely not just with urban planning. But and and remember that urban planning is an extremely diverse field. You could be doing housing, you could be doing transportation, you could be doing environmental, you could be doing, uh, I mean, a lot, okay? So exactly. I actually, and one of the reasons I liked urban planning was when I first was introduced to the whole idea of it as a discipline and as a practice was like, dang, I could do dang near anything in this. You know, I, I could I could be doing all kinds of things. I could be working for a regional um uh, organization. I could be working for the city. I could work for a little town. I could work for the federal government. Uh, I mean, you right. name it. Exactly. Um, I mean, it's not that easy. Exactly. It's not like I could go out and pick the job off of a tree. But there's just a a a, a you know a, a whole range of occupations that are planning related um, that. Uh, anyone who's who's interested in it, you know, could go and tap. And it's just that, yeah, of course, my experience has not been that great with doing it because, again, uh, often they're like, ah, uh, we don't want somebody with a PhD, you know. Even if I just were to put the master's down there, it's too late. You know, I've got all this stuff published online, you know, it's hard for me to um, right. to, to hide anything. Uh, once you start making presentations and, and speaking at conferences and stuff like that, as an academic, that's how you're going to be known. And so, again, I think the number one is we don't want an academic. Okay. Right. Basically. We want, basically. And so, yeah, they think an academic oh, yeah. couldn't be a practitioner. Right. Whereas, well, you know, I really learned. Uh huh. Go ahead. You really learned. I'm just saying, I really learned to straddle both sides. You know, I'm 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 every day, all day, an academic, but I'm also a person who can put feet on the ground. So um, right and mm-hmm. yeah. So that's that's oh, it. Yeah, no, some people don't can't really work like that. Some people are just academics. That's it. 
That's all they got, you know. Right. And then some are going to be your practitioners, and they really don't care about the articles that are out there, you know, or the, the teaching, or the, ped- the pedagogical kind of approaches to planning. And they don't really, you know, want to get in all. They just want, hey, get up, go to work every day and uh, as a planner. And, and I, I respect all of it, you know. It all works together, but then there's, there's certainly that space where you're going to have people who can do both. Exactly, exactly. And I just kind of wanted to give the people a little example, two little examples of um, displacement as far as black communities are concerned. In New York City, there was a, a wealthy, prosperous black city that was totally torn apart and, and everybody dispersed so that they could build Central Park. So Central Park is now located where a very prosperous black city once lived. In your, even in your own cities, like when I had Christopher Everett on the show, he told you all to go and look in your own backyards. There are stories there. And I can tell you stories about Chicago, about different communities that were doing well and other communities that didn't do so well. However, the failure of that community, again, was calculated because they wanted the home values. They wanted the value of the property to fall because it was an impoverished neighborhood, and they considered it a blight. That's why you sometimes see those walls on a highway. It's the height of poverty and blight. But what's done in some of those cases is those people are dispersed because the city has decided they want to expand the highway, and they want to send mm-hmm. it through that particular neighborhood. You know, mm-hmm. you have. So I was just giving a couple of examples of things that have happened that people may not know how all of this is interrelated. And I just think it's important, again, you know, that we have people like you out here and, you know, in sharing this type of information. But, you know, we're going to round up. We're going to kind of round this up. But what I want you to do is tell us what do you want us to walk away from this conversation with? What do you want the person reading the book to walk away with? Mm -hmm. Well, First of all, I want people to buy it, so I do want them to go to uh, the link you you provided. Um, I want them mm-hmm. to support it. I want them to read it. I want them to feel it. Um, I want them to understand the power of love because, see, a big part of this is even the next book, like I said, that I'm I'm writing is about love, too, and love of self, um, the, 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 the importance of standing up for oneself in the face of terror or trauma or abuse. So love is really what I'm promoting here, the power of love. And that, that's a bit, uh, if you know who Bell Hooks is, and, and, if it, and if you're here, if you know who Bell Hooks is, I was really informed about <laughs> Bell Hooks writing about love. And as a womanist, um, I'm even more compelled by love because womanism as a uh, cultural term and phenomenon is, is, is rooted in love. The love, again, of one's self, the love of others in your, in your cultural group, the love of music, the love of dance, the lo- you know, love. And the power, again, that comes from being loved and, and loving oneself. Because when you love yourself, you, again, you can fly. When you love yourself, you will, you can face 
the worst of all circumstances. And I think that, you know, we look back at the Middle Passage, we look back at the way in which African people, Caribbean people survived it, it, their own Holocaust, our Holocaust, was that they loved themselves. Harriet Tubman, she right. loved herself. She loved her people. She fought for them. That is what you have to do. That's what we all have to do on a day-to-day basis. We have to love ourselves. And I want people to feel that. I want people to understand how important that is. And that will transform our world. That has always transformed our world. Um, if it sounds a bit like a sermon, it probably, you know, hey, I, I told you I used to be a preacher. <laughs> um, but I want people to understand the power of love. I really do. And that's why I said this is a love letter. Um, well, something else that you made me think of. I want them to buy the book. Oh, I, I also, hey, I want them to donate to my work. I want people, I got a, a, a website. People always go to my, my personal website. They rarely go to my business website, which is amconsultingkc.org. But my personal is annaleesponza.com, and people always go there instead of the other one. And you can donate to my work. I mean, I, I need support for my work. Writing is a, a very um, political and dangerous thing to do. When you put your ideas out there in the world, everybody's not going to agree with that. So I exactly. need that support. I, 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 I work a job that actually doesn't really pay that well. <laughs> and for now, until <laughs> I, uh, how do I put it, until I make um, significant money, I need that support. This is why I'm writing books as well as another uh, stream of income for myself. So that's it. Um, That's what I'd like for people to know. Yeah. All right. Well, give us that website again as well as your cash app. Oh, my cash app is just my name. It's the um, dollar sign with Annalise Fonza, F-O-N-Z-A. And then my website is AnnaliseFonza.com. Yeah, and people always go there. That's they can go to the. Well, you're you going to see more writing that? there. Yeah, you have a donate um, button over there. I do, and so that's a PayPal. Um, but yeah, the AM Consulting does not have a donate option associated with it because I just use Cash App or, you know, people. If that, however, people give to me, you know, that's that's that. So. Um, I, I appreciate everyone who supports my work and my writing because. Um, and, and even though, yep, I'm like, dang, it took me this long to kind of get it out there, but um, at least it's out there, you know. <laughs> um, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Well, that is excellent. AnnaliseFonza.com and her cash app is, you know, the dollar sign AnnaliseFonza, A-N-N-A-L-I-S-E-F as in Foxtrot. O N Z as in zebra A. So Annalise Fonza, yep. dollar sign Annalise Fonza, that's for the cash app. So you know, we definitely want you all to support her and her work. And then also, I want you to brag a little bit. Tell us about this Amazon thing here. Your number 35. Tell us. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so, yeah, in my, in my major area, urban uh, land use and planning. 
on the Amazon website. So Urban Land Using Planning, I'm number 35. I don't quite know how that happened. <laughs> but not like I've sold a whole lot of books. The book has only been available since November the 3rd. But, um, and I mean, the other piece of this is I have some colleagues, you know, I do know people who teach. And so some of them hopefully will assign this to their students. So that, that helps me uh, that I know people in the urban planning world. Uh, but yeah, out of 100 books, I suppose, it's number 35. Or I don't know how many. Out of, I don't know what the bottom is. I, I just know I'm 35, and down the line, 35, which is a good thing. And, and again, like I said, I love it because this EPUB is so small. You can read it literally in a half an hour. Um, and and yet I did that because most people are not going to be sitting there for that long reading a book about, you know, black communities. <laughs> you know, so it's like I, I just wanted to get it, get it out there and move on, you know. So it's an easy read. Oh, the other thing is, let's say you've been hearing this show and you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm trying to do this thing with this organization in my hometown, and we want to start this conversation. Um, send me a message on um, either on WordPress on my website, or you can even find me. I'm also a humanist celebrant, so you can find me uh, as a I, – I don't um, do a lot on my personal page uh, on Facebook, but I do – if you want to get at me through um, – it's at Dr. Fonza, uh, Humanist Celebrant, or Facebook.com, Dr. Fonza. Just, just do that. And, um, yeah, invite me to your city. Invite me to your town. Invite me to your organization. Love to um, help create conversation around this concept, you know, of, of love and why it's so important and, and how you can do – and what you can do in your own community to, to make that a reality. So, that's what I'd say. Yeah, I'm, I'm available. I'm, I, I have suitcase. Will travel, indeed. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> and I just added the Amazon link because um, I had um link for the website on books to read, and I just okay. added the link to Amazon. So the books to read, that is the link under Reading Black Communities of Love. And then under Annalise Fonza is the Amazon link. So either way, you all uh -huh. go out there and buy the book and support Dr. Fonza and and send her a note and let her know, you know, what you may have gotten from this show and, and congratulate her because, you know, we are really proud of her and proud of the work that she's done. And, you know, we're honored to be able to call her a friend of the show. So thank you, Dr. Fonza. I appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate you, my friend. We'll talk soon. Oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah, definitely. But one more thing. I know I said this yeah. is the third time. You know what it is about black people and saying goodbye. Yeah. Okay. So some of the young people out there, the young people that may or may not be in school, but, but you know, they, they, they're looking at themselves and they're like, you know, it's just me trying to do this, or some of my friends were trying to do this. We don't know what to do. You know, give them some words of encouragement, letting them know it only takes one to, to really start a movement. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, young people, you know, I hope they learn to put good people around them. It only takes one, but you could be with the wrong one, a wrong one. Right. 
So be mindful of who you choose to follow, who you choose to associate with, who you choose to emulate in life. Um, be, be, be mindful of that. I say that to young people because when you choose wisely and make good choices with good people, you know, it's better. <laughs> um, I, I know right. this, again, through my personal life as well as my professional life. Uh, you've got to look beyond the words. As, as this is a song. Uh, by, the song's name is Joseph Lee from Diane Reeves, and she's talking about this preacher's daughter who goes out into the world, and she gets sucked into a life of um, sounds like um, prostitution. But nevertheless, one of the lines in the song is, you've got to look beyond the words that people say because sometimes they'll do anything to have their way. And so I, I think it's important that we become protectors of, our, of ourselves, you know, protectors of your integrity. For young people, they have to learn how to do that. They have to learn to protect themselves. They have to learn to listen to themselves. They have to learn also to run or move away from people, distance themselves from people who mean them no good. Get, get with people who love you. Get within a community that cares about your interests and your future, right? Not who just want to use you for what they can get out of you. But that's what makes a difference right. with uh, young people because I teach young people uh, when I'm not at my, I teach adult learners who are preparing for the high sets, uh, the high set certifications. But I also, when I'm not there, I teach in the local public school system here in the region, the metro. And a matter of fact, because last week, Monday and Tuesday, I had the opportunity to be in a fourth grade classroom uh, here in Kansas City, and it was just a delight. Um, and I can't tell you what kind of impact it had upon the children for them to see me, number one, but also to feel for me that I love them, right, that I that I love them because I because of – they're predominantly black, right? Most of them are black. I love them all, even the white students. <laughs> but I love, or the brown students, or whatever. But when you love yourself, you can love others, right? That's right. And um, they sensed that. They were like all over me by the time that I left on, I did two days in a row, and it was really beautiful. And so young people, Aww. it's important for young people to be around people who genuinely love them and who love themselves. And that'll make the difference down the line. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you, Dr. Fonza. We appreciate you. Guys, go out there, get the book. There are two links up there. Go out, show Dr. Fonza some appreciation and some love. Thank you. So, Dr. Fonza, until next time, thank you very kindly. Oh. And we appreciate you. And like I said, you're a friend of the show. So on that note, everybody, thank you for listening in and contact Dr. Fonza. Her website is AnnaliseFonza.com, and there's a donate button there as well as if you want to send her something on Cash App, you know, the little dollar sign, Annalise Fonza, just spell it all the way out. And send right. her a few dollars to let her know that, you know, you appreciate her. You want to encourage her to keep moving forward. So on that note, guys, I think I thank am going to do a show tomorrow, and I think – Thank you, Dr. Fonza. You know, so tomorrow <laughs> we're going to do a show. I'm talking about Kanye. 
But I'm talking about other stuff, too. But I'm letting y'all know I'm going to serve Kanye up a little bit tomorrow. So, you guys, enjoy the rest of your holiday weekend. I know some of us don't believe or celebrate holidays, but there are some that do. For those that do, be safe, be careful. And, um, again, like Dr. Fonza was saying, we have to learn how to love on each other. Whether it's blood, whether you know the person or not, there are some people out there looking for you, looking out for you, that you don't even know who they are. You don't know, you know, you don't know that they're out here advocating for you. So, right. you know, just take that into consideration and just show some kindness. You know, I want you to show kindness to others, but most importantly, be kind to yourself. Mm-hmm. Be kind to yourself. So, all right, y'all. Take it easy. Bye-bye. See you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you. (laughs) Bye.